This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. I've been coerced into watching tonight's movie. You do have books in the 24th century. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I'm Duncan Barrett and joining me today it's Carlos Miranda. Hi Carlos, how are you? Hi Duncan, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for hosting me here in your blissfully cool office. London at the moment is in the midst of, I think we've kind of gone past Cardassia Prime, we're, we're out in Vulcan's Ford oh, oh, or something I, like that I mean, by now, right? Yeah, and the I do think the central line is like a direct like Mount Celia. Like there's no, it is probably the hottest place I've been to in like over in several years. It's, yeah. It's a over... For American listeners, it's well into like, it's like 105, I think, on the central line, like right. almost 38, 39 on the central line. So it's hot. Yeah. It's hot. It's a new kind of hell down there, definitely, yeah. to be experienced. But today we are, we're not talking about something hot, we're talking about something cold, something Ooh. very, very cold. Ooh, nice transition. Uh, <laughs> some cold warriors uh, that we're looking at. And we're looking in particular at um, the 1990 movie, The Hunt for Red October, which I have to say I had never seen up until a couple of days ago. Uh, and the next-gen episode, The Face of the Enemy, which in various ways was apparently inspired um, by this film. And I should say to begin with, Carlos, when I first put this idea to you, it was because you'd mentioned, I think, on Twitter how much you loved this film, The Hunt for Red October. And I knew I'd never seen it, but I always kind of wanted to. And I said, well, why don't we do this episode talking about it and this next-gen episode? And you were like, yeah, I don't, I don't see the... The link there. So I guess one of the things we can start by looking at yeah. is, you know, what are these links? Is it a case of something where there's kind of, because on primitive culture, sometimes we talk about things where there's quite a strong connection. Sometimes we talk about things where the connection maybe was there in the background, but it mm. didn't necessarily make it yeah. all the way through. Um, but why don't we just start off? Tell me a little bit about your history with this film, because I know this is an important movie for you, right? It's an extremely, it's also a very emotional movie for me. I'll get to that in a second. I um, think the picture... What, what happened was a few weeks ago, one of my best friends, um, a guy named Stephen Shepard, um, sent me a picture of, um, a behind the scenes image of Hunt for Red October where right. Alec Baldwin and, 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 uh, and Sean Connery are seated on like, on the bridge of the Red October, but like it was built on, 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 on pulleys and gillies. So like actually the bridge was like at a 45 degree angle. And it was just mm-hmm. a cool, a really awesome behind the scene image that I had never seen. I knew that the bridge, that the bridge of the two submarines in the movie had been built on like rigs and things so they, so they could move and, 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 mm-hmm. but I had never actually seen it. So it was really, really awesome. And so I tweeted and then you got in touch. But I, um, this is one of my top 20, if not top 10 movies. Wow. 
for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I watched it first as a kid with my dad. And my dad is a massive Tom Clancy fan. My dad has literally read and reread every Tom Clancy novel out there many, many times. And for his, for, I think last Christmas, I bought off eBay for his, uh, a first edition copy of Brent from Ted October that had been signed by Tom Clancy. Uh, so I was a huge Tom Clancy fan and I had watched it first as a kid. But then, uh, you know, fast forward many years later, uh, my, my parents live in New York. I live in London. Um, and we've been living here for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And every single time, with only one exception, this is no, no exaggeration, no joke. Every single time I go see my parents' house, one night is Hunt for an October night. So it's a very, it's like, you know, my dad and I, uh, uh, we get along extremely well. I love him very much, but we're not, we're very, like, we're, we're not alike. At mm-hmm. all. We're mm-hmm. very different people. Um, and this is like a, like a thing that we have in common. And it's a very kind of, it's a wonderful connection. So to me, I watch the movie at least three times a year, always with my dad. So it's like a very, like, like a, like a, it's a, it, 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 it you know, it, 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 it's, it's emotional. It's, there's a nice connection there and a nice history. Wow, cool. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that your dad enjoyed the novel as well. I have to say, oh, I, love feel, the novel. I feel kind of bad because what I, I, with these, uh, things, I don't know if this is like my, English literature degree or whatever, but I always sort of, I have this sort of purist idea that I should read the novel first before I watch the film, just so that I kind of know what's in there. And normally on Primitive Culture, I end up saying, you know, even if the film is better known, go and check out the novel because it's worth, it's worth reading. I found this novel almost unreadable. Um, I I liked the film. I enjoyed the film. I think it's a good story, but the way that it's written, it just did my head in. And I don't know if it's, uh, I was listening to it on Audible. So to be fair, yeah. it could be the narration, but I didn't think there was actually anything wrong with the narrator. I thought he did a fine job. There's just something about the style that Tom Clancy writes in. Um, it, it, he's very obsessed with de- like technical detail. detail and yeah, this book yeah. was originally published by, I think by the US Navy or yeah. by some kind of in, yeah. like some kind of military yeah. publisher. It was not intended for a mainstream audience. So maybe that would kind of go down well. And he's also just, he's so interested in the technical things. The chapters and the sections are so short. Yeah. It feels like you never really get to know anyone. There are, right. there are no characters. They're all completely flat. Like even Jack Ryan. I mean, who is the central character in many, many of these novels, yeah. right? Uh, and, and, you know, in the films, always seems to be played by a different actor, practically yeah. every film. And it almost makes no difference because he has no, no personality yeah. in any way as a character. So I don't know. So, so I, I did enjoy the film. I have to say the novel, this is not a novel that I would recommend people go and check out, but it did have one very, uh, famous reader who was Ronald Reagan. And he yeah. was the one who turned this book into a bestseller, basically. And then obviously out of the success of the, the book, um, came the success of the movie. And it was, you know, they were both, really big hits I mean for me what works about the movie I think is the performances particularly Sean Connery uh, who just gives this wonderfully kind of um, terse cold kind of um, a character with real depth Um, you know even if it's not necessarily all there on the page you kind of get this real sense of this sort of soulful character I suppose in this um, Russian captain that he plays and also Sam Neill is great as his kind of second in command all the Americans kind of chewing the scenery as these like generals and captains and you know all these roles which are a bit cheesy and a bit kind of OTT but they all really commit to it and they kind of sell it so that, that I think is what kind of makes that film hang together I mean for me you know the story is interesting, but I, I, I don't. It wasn't Tom Clancy that came out of this experience as the kind of, um, you know, my my kind of uh, hero of the hour necessarily. Let's say it was more the kind of Connery uh, and those other actors as well who kind of who bring that to life one way or another. Well, two things: I've never read a Tom Clancy novel. 
I wouldn't start now I, if I, I were you. <laughs> so um, I, I can't speak, or I've never heard one either. Like, yeah, I, so yeah. I cannot speak to the quality of his writing or the story or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie, to me, it's it. I forget the connection that is between me and my dad and the movie. It's um, I, I think that movie is one of the most perfect, mm-hmm. um, like military espionage Cold War movies mm-hmm. um, of the last, arguably, 40 years. And, and, and it's, you know, you say, you hear people say, oh, they don't make things like that anymore. And I genuinely think that they don't make movies that come for October anymore. It's such a slow burn, mm-hmm. right? And it takes, so much of it is dialogue. And so, and even though if you're, you're in a submarine um, and it's very claustrophobic, right? It really feels, I always watch, I always think about how the uh, I'm rewatching season three of Enterprise right now, mm-hmm. which I have not seen since it. I've seen some episodes, but as a whole, in, in chronological order, since it originally aired twenty years ago or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you remember that they they wanted to design the NX01 to be t- like a submarine, mm-hmm. and there are places where it really works, like in some of the crew quarters, in Archer's ready room, where he like has to bend over because of the arch. But it doesn't really work. It's not that you never get the sense that it's claustrophobic, right? Mm. Which most submarines are. And, and what I love about this movie is that this movie is so claustrophobic. It's such a slow burn. It's so much of it hinges on Connery and his performance. Um, uh, Alec Baldwin, like a mm-hmm. very young, uh, like when Balak Wallace is like, like good looking, like young guy. Um, but then the, the remaining cast, you talk about Sam Neill, Tim Curry's in this movie, mm-hmm. you know, um, just Scott, it, Glenn. Scott Glenn is in this movie, uh, James Earl Jones is in this yep. movie, like, like the supporting cast is incredible. It's incredible. Um, and also, of course, Gates McFadden. Gates McFadden is in this movie. <laughs> Dr. Crusher like one, one of, I think, what may be sort of one of two female characters probably in this movie. It's, it is quite a kind of macho, quite a kind of male. I can't think character. of who the other female. I mean, I'm is. guessing, I think there is one somewhere, <laughs> but it's like, she, she, she's a, a very daughter. A rare, yeah the, <laughs> yeah. the daughter. There you yeah. go. Yeah. Who probably gets more lines than Gates McFadden actually. And this was one of the projects that she was doing during her, away time in yes. the second season of Next Gen so while During Pulaski banishment. exactly while Pulaski was manning the sick bay yeah. she was manning well not not a nuclear submarine as it yeah. happens she's she's the wife back home yeah. and I think she did have a bigger role in the film yeah. but it basically all ended up on the cutting room floor yeah. and I have to say from her one scene it's probably not a great she's tragedy terrible. because she is awful in that one it's scene terrible <laughs> but her accent so she's supposed to be so the, the whole point is that Jack Ryan is married to an English woman yeah and lives in London. Uh, I think he lived in Oxford or something. Oh, well, no, he I lives might, in England. I might be pulling this out of the novel. No, I think yeah, you're pulling this out. No, he lives in London in the store. Right, okay. Because they, he, you she know, drives her. <laughs> anyway, anyway, the point is that they, I think they right. live in London. Okay. The, they, live in, they live in England. They live in England. Right? So and he's married to an English that. woman who's played by Gates McFadden. Mm-hmm. And actually, I love Dr. Crusher. Mm-hmm. I love Gates McFadden. But she's terrible in this movie. And God knows if it was because of her performance or because of, you know, the, the flow of the story. But her many, her several scenes, and he talks about his wife and his daughter mm-hmm. quite a bit. They're nowhere to be seen. No. I mean, her accent is awful. Oh. I don't know whether she got the part on the strength of, uh, I know she was, you know, she was a choreographer on Labyrinth, for yeah. example. She obviously had spent a certain amount of time in England, yeah. whether she was like, you know, playing that card or, or what it was. What, I don't quite get why they cast her as this English character, but I don't know. Anyway, but I, I think you're right. Like her character is almost irrelevant to yeah. the film anyway. She's in this one scene at the beginning. And it's interesting because this kind of goes back to what I was saying about Tom Clancy and his lack of interest in Jack Ryan as yeah. a character. 
one of, I mean, this is a very small criticism of the novel. One of the things that goes on in the early chapters of the novel, where Jack Ryan is still in England and yeah. he's talking to people, is he keeps going on and on and on about this Barbie that his daughter wants for Christmas. She wants a, a ski action Barbie, and people keep thinking that it's a different kind of Barbie. And I was thinking, okay, fine. Well, at the end, at least the, at the end of the book, they're going to pick up on this. It's going to be a kind of motif. By the end of the book, it's completely forgotten about. We don't care what his daughter got for Christmas. And it just, it just struck me as a kind of, a little kind of microcosm of this kind of like, I'm, I'm going to try and give him this sort of personal life, but I have so little interest in it. Yeah, it's literally, yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. this one line that gets repeated over yeah. and over again. And then I forget that it even, it even happened. And it is a little bit like that. I mean, in the film, you actually, you kind of expect him to go back to his family at the end, but it ends on, well, I guess it's kind of a joke that he's, he's scared of flying and he can't yeah. sleep on planes. And then he's so exhausted yeah. that he's asleep on the plane and he's got the teddy bear for his daughter. So there's a kind of hint to the family, but they find a way of returning him to family without actually having yeah. Gates McFadden or the daughter yeah. in yeah, a yeah. scene. Yeah. <laughs> no, it ends with the shot of the, of, of the bear, yeah. which the whole joke in the movie is that his daughter wants a little brother. Right. And yeah, like, yeah. um, and so there are some components in the, in the, I think, I think the character is infinitely more fleshed out from what you're saying right. in the novel, because you do get a set. I mean, I'm sorry, not in the novel, in the movie. Right. Yeah. Um, again, haven't read the novel, but I think in the movie, you get, you get the sense that he, you know, um, you learn that when he was a cadet, he, uh, he was in a helicopter that went down and he had to do his like last year of school from the hospital bed and he had to learn how, had to, learn how to walk again. So you get all of that in the book, but it's, again, it's just like, it's just sort of random. What, what you get in the book, and this is, this is not meant to be a podcast about me bashing Tom Clancy, but he has a very particular and very strange style. Like he has this obsession with technical details, which, okay, fair enough. This is a techno thriller. You yeah. do want a certain amount of technical details. He also does this thing where whenever he introduces a character, he gives you sort of random bits of backstory, yeah. but in a totally clunky, uh, yeah. sort of inorganic way where you just sort of dump information about someone right. when you introduce them. Um, and, and with Jack Ryan, it's, I mean, in the book, I, I can't remember the, it probably is in there, the thing about the helicopter, but there's also this terrorist attack that he kind of inadvertently stopped, which I imagine may crop up in one of the, because I think some of the books kind of go back yeah, it, to before it, this not, time. That's maybe not, in the cover, not in the movie. Right. No, it's not, no, I don't think it is in the movie. But I mean, it's just, I don't know, that it, it, it's more just the sense that these characters feel very flat to me yeah. in the book, which, as I said, they, they don't... Um, in the film, with the possible exception of Gates McFadden's character, who definitely does, Who's really does feel like... Who's really barely in the movie. No, it's so. barely there. I mean, it's not <laughs> particularly credible. She's not the only Star Trek uh, character, we might say, who appears in this movie. Because at one point, I thought this was quite thrilling. Jack Ryan uh, is coming to land on an aircraft carrier. It's and true. It, uh, the what comes across the screen? USS Enterprise. Exactly. So there you go. You know, the USS Enterprise is also yeah, in this movie. It is. One way or another. And, and I do think it is. They shot... I could be wrong here, but they definitely, who knows if they actually shot on the Enterprise, but they definitely shot several scenes on a real aircraft carrier. Did they? Right. Um, and it may have actually been the Enterprise, but in the, in the ship that they're on is in the movie is 100% the USS Enterprise. Right, right. Okay. But I mean, uh, more so than those two sort of incidental features, I, I think there are reasons why. I mean, we can talk about whether we think this kind of comparison works or not, but to me watching it and watching Face of the Enemy, there certainly were elements mm. there that um, tied these two stories together. I mean, one of them is this sort of, uh, is actually more, a more general thing with Star Trek, I suppose, which is the idea of the cloaking device and the Romulan cloaking yeah. device. Yeah. And the cloaking device does play a big role in Face of the Enemy because yeah. in particular you have this whole thing about um, that they they do this kind of act of sabotage in effect. Another theme that kind of plays out, you know, that you've got deliberate sabotage in the film we've got deliberate sabotage in the episode so that the enterprise can see through the cloak and yeah. then you've got this thing going on where um 
the Romulan commander is basically playing a game of chicken, saying, well, you know, if they can see me, they're going to move at the last minute, and then I'll know that they've, they've broken our cloak, yeah. basically. Yeah. Now, in the film, the whole plot of the film, and the book as well, uh, is about the fact that this new state-of-the-art submarine, the Red October, has what's known as a caterpillar drive, yeah. which is a kind of silent means of propulsion, yeah. which means that they can get close enough at least as Sean Connery explains it, to the coast of the US to launch a nuclear attack without anyone yeah. knowing they're there, yeah. basically. So it's exactly, functionally, the same concept as a cloaking device. Mm-hmm. It's basically they found a way of avoiding sonar, of yeah. becoming completely invisible. Yeah. And so it is that kind of Cold War feel of like, um, you, you know, the idea of these these ships that are undetectable, that you yeah. don't know know where they are or what's going on. And definitely, I think, in Next Gen, more generally, when you have these kind of Romulan, Cold War-inflected mm. Romulan episodes... That is a big part of them. The fact that these ships kind of just shimmer into being suddenly and you realize you're surrounded. Yeah. And they, they come out of nowhere. Um, that is a big element of it. And it's a big part of both stories. This idea of this kind of silent running, I suppose. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, th- I think that that is correct. I mean, I think the Caterpillar device, even, even as a kid, kind of making that connection, I remember being like, oh, it's like they're cloaked, right? Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the whole thing. It's like, it's, you know, they're, 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 they're looking for the, um, the Americans and Jack Ryan. They want to get a hold of the device because mm. it's they well they want it for themselves but also to kind of understand this new potential threat and so there they is can an crack element it, basically yeah exactly so they can crack it. Else, it's yeah. there's there's definitely an element of less so in next gen and kind of 24th century star trek shows but very much kind of that you know original series of like we must get this cloaking device what is this technology enterprise, that enterprise yeah, for exactly yeah, that's exactly yeah, what yeah. i was thinking about enterprise instance. so like this idea of there is this technology out there that could really change the balance of power mm. Uh, and tip it over because they can come into our space without us ever knowing and decloak and attack us at, at a moment's notice. So there is that element that Star Trek plays on. And I think, you know, it's interesting when we were prepping for this, we talked a little bit about this, that we were always fed the lines that when Star Trek was originally created, the Klingons were very much thought to be the placeholder for the Soviet Union. The Klingons mm-hmm. were the Russians. Mm-hmm. I never, I never bought that. I've always thought, I've always thought that the Klingons were far more what Westerners think of like traditional Japanese mm-hmm. samurai culture, like, you know, honor above all else. And Certainly to me, in next gen. In, it definitely, definitely, yeah. definitely next gen onwards. Mm-hmm. To me, it, the Klingons were a stand in for our, our ideas of what traditional Japanese samurai culture was, is, is and was like. Um, but the Russians, were f- the Romulans were far more mm. Soviet-esque, especially in next gen, maybe arguably even more Chinese-esque. Um, but, but to me, this, the, the, the Cold War, the Cold War that's always been happening between the Federation, it's, it's that Cold War between the Federations and the Romulans. Mm. There are very few shows, when you think about it, very, very few shows, very few movies, where it's the, where you actually see Romulans and Federation ships actually engaging in combat. Mm. It's always Cold War stuff. It's always cloak and dagger. It's always cat and mouse. It's never direct contact. Which I always loved about it. I mean, this was famously the reason that Patrick Stewart went off the Romulans because there was an idea to bring them into insurrection. He said, I don't want Romulans. Everyone's bored of Romulans. They never do anything. Basically, because it's true. On one level, if you watch Next Gen, the Romulans always turn up. They threaten with this kind of huge amount of firepower. You get the sense those ships are are light arms to the teeth. And then no one ever ends up firing their phasers. And it kind of all... It is exactly that kind of Cold War 
war standoff. You know, it's like the kind of Cuban Missile Crisis yeah. or something, effectively. I find that quite effective. I think there's a lot of tension in those scenarios. I agree completely. But it is true, you don't get the kind of all guns blazing, yeah. like, firefights that you, yeah. you get elsewhere, you know, in Star Trek, maybe. It's interesting what you're saying about this kind of thing about the technology, though. I mean... Later on in Next Gen, we learn, of course, that the, the Federation are forbidden from developing mm-hmm. a cloaking device. They actually can produce the technology. Essentially, they're, they're uh, sort of legally prevented from doing so. But in this kind of earlier period, um, I think there's a line in The Defector, which is an episode we mm-hmm. might come and talk about in a little bit, where Picard says something like, you know, there's got to be a way to get through this cloaking technology. There's got to be a way. You know, it, it seems like he, he's sort of saying this is a real strategic problem for us and we need a kind of technical yes. solution for it. And you're right, absolutely. You know, in the Hunt for Red October, that's what the situation is. And interestingly, in the first draft, apparently, uh, Face of the Enemy, um, the kind of... I was going to say the MacGuffin. It's not exactly a MacGuffin, but the, the, the kind of... The, the plot device that, that Deanna Troy was supposed to be involved in, the yeah. end result of that plot, was actually she was supposed to be handing over a Romulan ship to the Federation. Yeah. Exactly as in Red October, yeah. you know, Sean Connery is... Her, him and his crew are defecting his officers because there's this kind of yeah. uh, interesting contrast. It's basically him and his senior staff, essentially, who yeah. shut, you know, lock the door on their cabin and, and yeah. plot this... Uh, defection together. None of the lower decks crew know mm. that it's happening, even right up to the very end of the film. Um, so it, it's on the one hand, they want to defect because they want a new life in America. But for him, it's also the fact that he actually wants to give up this technology because yeah. he doesn't want the rush. He doesn't trust his own superiors not to use it yeah. uh, immorally. And he wants to hand this technology over uh, so that the Americans and the West can kind of yeah. study it and learn how to uh, to counteract it in a sense. And I suppose that parallel, it, w- it would have been stronger if they'd stuck with that idea that it was a Romulan ship yeah. that was being handed over, yeah. um, you know, a prototype mm. or, or, or whatever it is. A brand new um, type exactly. of cloaking device. Exactly, yeah, a new kind of t- cloaking device or a new kind yeah. of, a bit like in Star Trek Six, you know, the yeah. ship that can fire when it's cloaked or yeah. whatever. And we, and yeah. we think, okay, this is too much of a strategic advantage. We're going to give up this technology. Now, in fact, what they end up with is these defectors instead who are in stasis. So they're kind of like non it's, it's weird because they're people, but they're kind of non-people because they're yeah. literally asleep yeah. for, the, for the whole thing. Um, interestingly, though, apparently they were toying with the idea that one of them might be Spock. Yeah. Michael Pillar was quite keen on the idea that one of them might be Spock. And then, in fact, furthermore, in the idea that Spock might have died yeah. in, this, in this process in some way, they quite liked the idea of just killing Spock randomly, yeah. I think. I mean, to me, aside from the fact that I don't think it really... I'm, I'm glad they didn't kill Spock off in that yeah. way. But also, I don't really think it makes sense because if it was Spock... He's not defecting. Do you know what I mean? And they have set up this whole sort of theme of these Romulans who are sort of working against the Romulan command, in a sense, and trying to uh, engage with the Federation and trying to do this stuff. And and yeah, that's sort of what Spock is doing. He's kind of helping get people out and stuff. But um, then you take away the idea of someone switching allegiances and switching sides because Spock, we know, is a Federation citizen. You know, he's doing his work on Romulus or whatever. But that's a whole different story somehow if you tell it that way. I I do think... I agree that the stakes are not... By, by doing that, by having me three people that you don't know anything about, it's like pro-consul such-and-such, mm-hmm. and there's two top eights. Like, and everyone looks at me like, oh, oh, oh yeah, pro-consul so-and-so. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, like, that, doesn't, that doesn't pack any sort of emotional yeah. or dramatic you know, punch. Yeah. And so it, it is dialed down significantly from, from Red October in the sense that they are this like truly strategic first-strike weapon. Yeah. But what I do like about the fact that it's like this like random people, uh, you know, these random pro-consul with his two top eights, is the fact that it's, it, it serves as a slight reminder 
dare I say, continuation sequel to Unification 1 and 2, which are mm-hmm. such amazing episodes of Next Generation, especially Unification 1. And it's such a big, given that it's Spock and given that it's Unification of the two, of the two species and such and such, it's, it's such a big story with massive geopolitical ramifications for the Trek universe, right? Mm-hmm. That it's just nice to be reminded that that was also happening, even though they never, yeah. ever again, they never bring it up, really, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, randomly they bring it up in, in Star Trek 09, uh, with kind of Spock's work with, with the Romulans, but it, you know, they don't bring it up for basically 20 years of Star Trek. It doesn't come up in Nemesis, weirdly. Weirdly, it doesn't come up in Nemesis. It would be the obvious yeah. uh, time to kind of read Well, and the flip side is that you never hear about remands any, like, at any point until, until, yeah. until, until Nemesis. So yeah. there, yeah. there are, uh, maybe Nemesis is a little bit of a bump in the road. Yeah. And obviously Nemesis is clearly the point where Patrick Stewart lost that argument about not including the Romulans yeah. in the film. And, yeah. you know, who knows? Well, isn't it that John Logan really loved the, the idea of the Romulans so, yeah. and something yeah. like pushed for it being to be, to be Romulans? And you can see also, I mean, John Logan, and of course famously wrote Gladiator, very interesting yeah. kind of Roman culture. There yeah. is a lot of that kind of, yeah. you know, Romans, yeah. Romulans, you know, yeah. Romulus and Remus yeah. and all, all that kind of thing. There's, yeah. there's a lot of that in there. It's also in The Hunt for Red October, bizarrely, the character played by Sean Connery is actually called Captain Remus. Ramius, yeah. Ramius, which is extremely close to yeah. Romulus. You know, when I first listened to this audio book, I was like, what? What did yeah. they say his name was? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, I mean... Well, I always thought whatever. that was like the, the element of like, there was obviously an element of like duality of who he was. And mm-hmm. so that, that they're playing on, you know, I'm sure Clancy was playing on that with the name as well of mm-hmm. like the fact that like, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's Lithuanian, but working for the Soviets. Yes. He wants he's to a Reman, basically. He's a Reman, exactly. Yeah, he's not a Russian, he's, he's, he's a Lithuanian. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just an interesting kind of component, uh, just goes, Unlike this, unlike the book, apparently it, it, it's it's a nice way of of, of uh, deepening the character in the movie. Well, actually, one element that I would say that is in the book and I don't think was mentioned in the film is that the the reason for his defection in the film it seems more sort of ostensibly political, mm. uh, which actually you know chimes more with the kind of defections that we, okay. we see in Next Gen. It's always a kind of ideological thing. It's yeah. always about that kind of you know my government is doing something I can't support and I'm going to have to switch sides. In the book, it's actually more clearly uh, about his wife who's yeah. died. That basically this has kind of broken him because his wife has died. And interestingly, there's again there's a kind of parallel there with the Romulan captain yeah. Tereth in yeah. um, Face of the Enemy. Um, the Sean Connery character, well, he's not Sean Connery in the book, obviously. The, the Ramius character, the, the, the uh, I was going to say the Romulan captain. Yeah. I'm going to get my head twisted in knots. <laughs> the Russian captain. Even if he's Lithuanian, the yeah. Soviet captain, the Soviet, captain. The Soviet captain, uh, has lost his wife, and they do talk about this in the film. Various people, including Jack Ryan, yeah. I think, says to him, "You know, I'm so yeah, sorry to hear about your wife." On the anniversary of his mother, of his, of his wife's That's death. right. It's the yeah. anniversary of her death. But I don't think they explained in the film, unless I missed it, that the key thing is that that his wife was killed by a sort of botched job by a, a dodgy doctor, and the doctor has been protected by the authorities because he's like the yeah. son of some, yeah. you know, high-ranking Soviet official or yeah. something. And so, it's, it, and basically, so it's not so much just that his wife has died, it's that he's been unable to get justice sure. for his wife's death. And that's really what's tipped him over, is this kind of personal wound, yeah. in a sense. And it's kind of interesting because in face of the enemy, you have a similar thing where the, the Romulan captain's hatred of the Tal Shiar and real hostility to Towards uh, Major Rakal, who you know is the character Diana Troy is basically impersonating, um, is based on this story that she tells about her father being dragged out of his bed at night and yeah. taken away, and she never saw him again. Yeah. So it's again, it's that idea of you know someone who, yes, they're a captain in the military of the yeah. of of this 
empire or, or you know whatever it is but at the same time their own someone in their own family has been mistreated by that system yeah. it's given them the kind of insight into the the corruption or the cruelty or the kind yeah. of um darker side of that uh and it's interesting i mean obviously the romulan captain is not it's not going to make her defect it's not going to make her do something like that um one of the things that struck me is she can be quite open about her feelings. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? She can be quite outspoken on her own ship and she yeah. can kind of talk down to Deanna Troy and, and sort of talk down about the Tal Shiar and so on. In The Hunt for Red October, one of the things that's quite interesting, I think, is that because it is only the senior staff who know about this thing um, and the rest of the crew, like sort of in public, everyone has to toe the line. Everyone has to say, yes, comrade yeah. this and comrade yeah. that. And everyone has to sing the national anthem and, yeah. and do all this stuff and kind of totally go along with the kind of apparatus of the state yeah. in a sense. And you see that because initially, I mean, the, the, at the very beginning of the scene, of the film, there's this scene with the political officer, yeah, well, that was, um, played by saying. Peter Firth from yeah. uh, Spooks, weirdly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, as, as this character who, spoilers, is not in the film for very long because Sean Connery dispatches him quite suddenly and quite brutally. But it, it still makes quite an impact, I think, the idea of having this guy on the ship, having this guy who hands the captain his orders, who's kind of this intermediary character. And this really is the character who Deanna Troy is yeah, effectively yeah. playing. It's this Tal Shiar character. Yeah. She's the political character. Yeah, he's instead of, KGB, he's exactly, KGB, yeah. and so like, yeah. Instead of being often like the first scene, yeah. pretty much, you know, she's, she's a part of the story. Um, but you do, in some ways, with the Red October film, Although Peter Firth's character is off very quickly, you get the sense, you know, of these other kind of loyalists mm. among the crew, other people who can they, like Tim Curry, for example, yeah. everyone seems a bit suspicious of him. Do they, you know, they certainly aren't letting him on in, in, yeah. on their plot. He's the doctor on the ship. Um, there's, there's another guy who it's slightly unclear where his loyalties are. There turns out to be another agent, yeah. a secret agent, um, basically a KGB or, you know, some kind of secret service agent on the ship who's posing as a cook. Yeah. Uh, so this kind of idea of, which I think does translate quite well to the next gen episode. This ship where you don't quite know who of your crew is to be trusted. Yeah. You know, the Romulan captain, she has the guy, for example, who's, who's the one handling Troy, essentially. Yeah. So she's got at least two people yeah. on her ship, plus the guy in engineering who's the one who's going to sabotage yeah. the thing. So that's three people yeah. on her ship who are basically working against her one way yeah. or another. And I think that's where a lot of the tension in both the film and in that episode comes from is that kind of sense of not quite knowing who to trust, not quite being able to speak. Uh, truthfully, not kind of being mm. open. Very different to the situation on a Federation starship yeah. where, you, you know, Captain Picard doesn't generally speaking have to worry about that. I mean, when we see it in, say, in the drumhead, the idea of like yeah. um, double agents on the ship or whatever, uh, it, he pretty much doesn't believe it. Yeah. He's, he's deeply sceptical about it. And we don't, we don't really, I suppose until Deep Space Nine with someone like Eddington, yeah. we don't really see that idea so much of... So, you know, and then it's one person, you know, it's maybe it's Eddington in, in DS9, it's Seska in Voyager, there's like a bad egg or something. But that kind of feeling that you get on the Romulan ship of like, who can I trust among yeah. these people? Do I really know them? Do I really trust them? Um, and, and, and it comes up in Red October because the only reason that he can trust his senior staff, it's not because he... Uh, has been serving with them for a while. It's because he trained, trained all of them, them. Yeah. so he knows he knows them going way back, and yeah. he's actually deliberately assembled this yeah. senior yeah. staff yeah. of very trusted, very loyal uh, people who he knows are not going to betray him. Yeah. No, I mean I think that's true, and I think it's very consistent as well with the way Romulans have been portrayed for almost the entire series, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like the, across you know whatever whatever series, whatever episode, whatever movie, is this idea that that everyone in Romulan society 
is scared of each other. And that's what kind of, that's this unhealthy glue that kind of keeps a society together. And it's, and that's very Soviet, or at least the mm. way we, we, we imagine the Soviet Union to have been. Um, and I think, you know, you think of episodes like Unification where, you know, you have the, the woman who owns the restaurant that Picard and Data are having lunch, like lunch at, and she's not mm-hmm. quite trusting of them. And she calls, she calls the authorities over. Um, you know, obviously you have, you have Romulan senator in, uh, in Nemesis that basically assassinates the entire rest of the Senate. You mm-hmm. know, you have episodes of Deep Space Nine where the episode with, with that in Latin that no one can pronounce where Bashir goes to Romulus, right? Like there's, like, like, Rama yeah. and in Silent Legos. Yeah, there you go. There you exactly. Go. <laughs> Sounds like a Harry Potter spell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, but it is, so I, I do think that's extremely consistent yeah. across every series, across every movie, that the, you know, that the Tal Shiar, that the, that the Romulan Senate, the Romulan, that the Romulan military, right down to Romulan citizens themselves, are all extremely skeptical of each other. And kind of closed. And, and, and very, of. exactly. Even though they're extremely emotional as, as a people, obviously compared to, to the Vulcans, mm-hmm. but they, they're, they're very kind of closed. They're very, like, they're, they're, they're each, each person is like a tomb mm. and they don't quite trust each other and that tension. And I actually think that's what makes the Romulans so interesting mm. because the Klingons wear their hearts on their sleeves, yeah. right? The Borg are after one thing and they're, and it, they're very, they're wonderful villains, but in many respects until the Borg Queen, they were one dimensional yeah. in a, in a terrifying sort of zombie way. Um, you know, I think, I think the Cardassians actually in many respects are the most Mm. They're Soviet-esque in many ways. They, they, they are absolutely. It's interesting. I mean, there's a kind of parallel there. I mean, people always talk about them as as the Nazis, I suppose. And, yeah. there's, and there's that as well. Yeah. You know, they're both kind of totalitarian yeah. Yeah. regimes where you don't dare to to speak your mind. But interestingly, I mean, I had Una McCormack on the show recently. Mm. I, I was saying to you, and her um, novel, The Neverending Sacrifice, which is all about kind of Cardassia and sort of plays through right from like early DS9 right through to the end of DS9 yeah. and then onwards. Yeah. It's sort of almost like slotting in the gaps yeah. and filling in stuff politically it's very interesting because it 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 made me realize and i suppose this is one of the things star trek novels can do but it i think it does it particularly successfully it kind of makes you reevaluate what you're seeing on the shows because you know you're only seeing a tiny sliver of that society and Mm. that you're seeing someone like gold you're seeing someone from the military and there's a whole sort of political process going on behind Mm. and there's a whole kind of civilian domestic process going on underneath that and she absolutely captures that idea of this kind of uncertainty instability fear yeah. of people living in that just ordinary people trying to yeah. live their lives in a society yeah. of that other kind of challenges of that even things like not having adequate drinking water or like yeah. basic yeah. Yeah. provisions which is all there on the screen in a sense in that we know that the Cardassians like screwed over their own planet they screwed over Beja or they yeah. kind of you know they come in and they yeah. they make a mess of everything yeah. um, essentially but to see that from the kind of ordinary person's perspective rather than just being, yeah. to see it rather than being mm. told it, I suppose, does make a big difference. But I think you're right, absolutely. With the Romulans, you've got that kind of baked into the premise of the Romulans, certainly in, well, to be honest, from the beginning, but certainly in Next Gen, you know, even from the first time they appear in the neutral zone, yeah. it's this idea of this mysterious enemy. We don't, you, you know, we, we know very little really about them. We never know what they're up to. They're always, there's always a scheme. There's always a plot. There's always yeah. something, you know, nothing is ever what it seems with them. There's yeah. always kind of um, something else going on. And I think absolutely, say in face of the enemy, you've got that tension, which is there in Red October as well, of, you know, trying to communicate with them. I mean, there's the scene in Red October where Alec Baldwin and Sean Connery are trying to communicate across these two nuclear subs without on Connery's sub 
other people literally in the room with him kind of realizing yeah. what's happening one and the kind of tension exactly all this stuff yeah one ping yeah uh, one ping, one ping keep, only. these pings keep pinging yeah, back exactly. and forth yeah. uh, and this is the only kind of extremely limited communication yeah. that they can have and you kind of have that again uh, in next time where you have diana troy talking to picard and picard needs to put his poker face on yeah. basically and pretend that he's never seen her before and he yeah. you know he doesn't uh, doesn't recognize her or yeah. whatever, and he accepts her as this yeah. Romulan um, operative. So again, that kind of idea of, you know, and she's, she's playing one thing to Picard. She's playing one thing to the captain. She's playing something else to the guy who's sort of handling her. You know, everything is very, is so carefully controlled and sort of talking in code and kind yeah. of um, uh, speaking without saying what you're saying necessarily. Yeah. And all that kind of, which I suppose is the whole kind of espionage mm-hmm. thriller side of it that, that both these things are kind of leaning on one way or another but I think that's what you just touched on is again why I think these are the Romulans are in many respects so underused um, but when they are used they can be used so wonderfully and surgically I mean you mm-hmm. think of some episodes you know I think Face of the Enemy is 100% the best Troy storyline mm-hmm. like there's there's no better episode for Troy than Face of the Enemy. Marina Sirtis says it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife, who's not a Trekkie, I was telling you, uh, my wife, who is not a Trekkie, um, but watches, ne- watches Star Trek with me all the time, uh, just loves to make fun of how bad Deanna Troy is as a character. And she's not a fan of Marina Sirtis' acting. Like, the whole, like, she just, she, she gets such joy out of, like, loving to hate Troy, right? right. Yeah, yeah. And she, wa- I made her watch this with me, and she was like, that was phenomenal. And she's like, do they have to give her oversized shoulder pads for her to act and, like, for her to have a great storyline? <laughs> so, but this is, so I think that when, the, when, you know, you think of things like In the Pale Moonlight, mm. you think of episodes, like, when you really think about it, they're just phenomenal villains. You think of Redemption, like, them pulling the strings in the Klingon Civil War. These are these are phenomenal villains, and it's always because they don't do the dirty work. They always get someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. There's always a hidden agenda. There's always something there. Um, and I look forward to like talking about Picard, because clearly, you know, mm-hmm. the Romulans are going to play a big part in this new series that we're getting. Um, so I, I am a really... I've become a very big fan of the Romulans because of, because of all the things that they never do. Because of yeah. it's, it's always behind the scenes. There's always an alternative motive. It's always cat and mouse, cloak and dagger. And there's always a cover story. That's the thing. Yeah. Especially if you think of like uh, Tomalock as a character. Okay, yeah. okay, on the one hand, he's always making threats he doesn't follow yeah. through with. On the other hand, he always has these kind of sort of implausible cover stories for everything yeah. that's going on, yeah. whether it's who's on Galondon Core, how many of them. Yeah. And they are very like the Cardassians. The Cardassians, again, always spinning everything, yeah. you know, yeah. putting out these stories that, you know, no one really believes in. But actually, it reminded me a little bit, uh, there's a great character in The Hunt for Red October who's the, basically the Soviet ambassador. Yes. And he has yes. these scenes uh, yeah. with the with the American guy. It's not the president, I think. He's like no, the no, president. They, they avoid it, showing the president. No, they don't show the president. The it's, it's the Secretary um, of Defense. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Whereas in the book, I think it is the president who kind of does all of this. So for whatever reason, they decide not to show yeah. it. But... Um, uh, he's quite—he's just kind of ridiculous because he, he's there sitting in the office and he's just peddling all these like lies, lies basically yeah. the whole time. Everyone knows their lies. Yeah. You know, first of all, it's that you know maybe a, a ship's gone missing yeah, or yeah, that yeah. a ship has sunk, and they're like, they yeah. know, clearly that's not true. Then when they realise there's a possibility that uh, Sean Connery is going to successfully yeah. defect, they try to convince the Americans that he's actually planning to launch a nuclear attack on yeah. America and, and ask for their help in, in yeah. shooting him down. Basically, again. At that point, there's this slightly bigger question over whether that might be true or not. And yeah. really, it's Alec Baldwin kind of leading the charge of yeah. saying, look, this is, this is just propaganda, basically. Yeah. But I suppose just that idea of the, of the person who's like parroting their, their political, um, 
like it's a political you know, line. It's like, a line, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's the line. The party and line. And, then, yeah. and then the diplomat on the other side has to sort of can't call them out for lying, but at the same time is you know clearly deeply skeptical of everything that comes but out. But those are such man. wonderful scenes in the movie because they both know they're lying. Mm. They both know the other is lying. They both will continue to lie to each other, and they will both, you know, kind of. It's okay. It's accepted. That's the that's the role that each of them is there to play. Mm. And I think it's just it works wonderfully. There's that great line of how you know the Soviets have dropped enough sonar buoys from Greenland to Scotland that you can walk from one to the other without getting wet, which <laughs> yeah. is just like, like a brilliant line. Um, and 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 it is. And I think the Romulans in next in, in next gen far more than the Klingons who were for the most part a blunt instrument. You mm. know. And I always think going back to what you were saying earlier is that um, the Klingons. Have such a had the had have the potential for such great stories, but we're always like seen it through the military, through this the political military kind of warrior class. Mm-hmm. And there are episodes where they make you know um, comments about the fact that not all Klingons are warriors, yeah. and, you know, uh, and some of them are really into art and obviously music and opera and food and all these things. And we get these glimpses of other elements of Klingon culture, but because we're being told basically a military story. I mean, Starfleet, mm-hmm. we don't ever think about it the way Starfleet is the military, right? Yeah. Um, you ask Carol Marcus. Uh, and, and so obviously they deal with their military counterparts. So that's the story we're told, but it is wonderful when you get these other glimpses. And I always think the Klingons is, is that's for another podcast. I always find it kind of hard to buy when the Klingons do go in for that real sort of, uh, skullduggery. And I mean, if you think of like Arn Darwin, Mm. Uh, in Trouble with Tribbles or then Folk in yeah. Discovery. I mean, cause it feel, it doesn't feel very Klingon. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That is exactly what you expect the Romulans to do. You expect yeah. them to be, I mean, say, uh, you know, in the mind's eye to do their kind of Manchurian candidate yeah, yeah, routine yeah, yeah, on yeah, Geordie. Yeah, yeah. And also the thing I always find fascinating about, about that episode is who is that guy who they send to Riser? Uh, who sort of looks vaguely like, like maybe he's Levar. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, is he a human who's working? Like, are they paying him? Is yeah. he a Romulan disguised as a yeah. human? You know, I always thought he was just a, ro- uh, like is he a robot? I mean, he doesn't speak. Yeah, yeah. You know? I always thought it was kind of like a, like a, uh, you know, an altered Romulan. Cause right. Kind of okay. Stuff that they do. That so would in my head, sense. that was always like, that made, you know, that's like, that's okay. what I, what yeah. I thought was canon. Something about the way that they talk, they kind of talk down. He doesn't seem to be in on the plot exactly though. It's like he's just, he's like someone they kind of hired for this job. Yeah. I don't know. There's something kind of weird about that. But you, and you do get this sense as well also of like defection going back and forth and back and forth. And this is a big theme. Obviously it's a big theme in Red October because, you know, Sean Connery's defecting. Um, Sam Neill actually as his sort of second in command, uh, is the one who I think carries more of the kind of, um, sense of the kind of lifestyle shift of the defector if you know what yeah. I mean he's got this idea he says he wants to marry a fat American girl and, and raise rabbits in yeah. Montana basically yeah. he's kind of like totally bought into this sort of yeah. American yeah. dream idea I suppose yeah. much more so than, than Connery I don't feel we we don't I, I feel like even at the very end there's a slight question mark over what's his life gonna be no, like Connery was now. doing something I think Con- the Connery character Ramus was doing something where he thought like he was doing something for the good of the world. Kind of noble. It was yeah. noble. It was noble. Yeah. It, it was like, it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. It was not about lifestyle. Exactly. You can imagine that he yeah. was very, he was, you know, he lived a very comfortable life mm-hmm. back given that he was the top Soviet commander. Yeah. So it, I don't think for him it was about money. It wasn't about lifestyle. It was the right noble thing to do because he knew that people in his government 
would use the weapon as first strike, mm-hmm. which would lead the Americans to retaliate, and you basically had worldwide, yeah. you know, World War Three at best, at best, and worldwide destruction at worst, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I think to him it was about doing the right thing, doing the noble thing. Mm-hmm. People like you know, people like Sam Neill. It was all about you know a lifestyle shift, yeah, and like and getting freedom and freedom, and, exactly. Which comes out it, certainly more so, I think, even in the book. Actually, there's a, there's a kind of scene at the end where. Um, Jack Ryan kind of gives the the sort of, you know, America's great, you'll love it kind yeah. of speech, essentially sort of saying how free you're going to be and how wonderful. And also, and they talk about this a lot in the book. I don't think it really comes up in the film that they're, they're going to get tons of money. Basically, the CIA will like yeah. bankroll them to some huge extent. They'll be yeah. living the life of Riley um, in the States. But it's kind of interesting. I think with Connery, there's a slightly more almost kind of tragic there's something he seems quite lonely at yeah. the end of the film do you know what i mean like he's done this thing but he's cut himself off from everything yeah uh in doing it and it reminds me actually in a way of another next gen episode the defector which right. is pretty much a contemporary of uh um, Humphrey yeah, yeah, and i imagine that episode could well have been inspired by that film as well because i think they came out at around yeah. the same time and there you've got a character who again is giving up his whole life giving up his family because yeah. he's got a daughter back home on romulus again because he believes that he has to provide this piece of information which then ultimately turns out to be worthless yeah. you know he's been played by his own people yeah. um, which is and he's very romulant and he's a totally and, and it's played in a totally kind of tragic way like here's this guy making this noble sacrifice and actually it's for nothing and yeah. ends up you know killing himself as a yeah. result because um, he, he's kind of given his life up yeah. uh, for this thing that was yeah. you know wasn't worth a penny mm-hmm. And but you get this sense that like Sean Connery Ramis would do that as well. Like yeah. if, if he, yeah. like he would, he would take his own life. Like you got, you got that sense. There is a certain, that beautiful shot at the end when the red October is in Maine mm. and like one of, in, in a river in Maine, which is as Jack Bryan says, no one will ever look, think <laughs> to think this far North because it is pretty far North. So they're just coming in from like, from, from, from Canada into Maine. And it's this like extremely secluded, extremely quiet, sad and lonely place and it's very much a reflection of where i think not you know to jack ryan it this is a he saved the day he has uh basically written his 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 own next his career mm-hmm. um you know the some of the other russians are defecting but to to ramus it's the end of his life he's like mm-hmm. this is it like it's 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 his his life his entire life as he knew it is no longer and so there's a certain melancholy in his character mm. yeah absolutely and I mean it's interesting when I was looking into it the, the Ramius character is, and, the, and the story of Red October is itself based sort of loosely on various yeah, historical yeah. events yeah. a couple in particular you know, one involving the summary another involving there's a guy called Jonas Plaskus uh, who, who again was a, a submarine tender captain I think that means it was, it was not it was not like a state of the art submarine yeah. or whatever and he ended up um, sort of like, defecting to Sweden yeah, like, yeah, in the yeah, States yeah. I think and but you know that that whole sense of like giving up your allegiance to your country, giving up. Um, you, you know, for some people maybe it's easy. I mean, if you if you're ideologically opposed to what your country is doing anyway, then maybe it's kind of a, yeah. a no brainer in a sense. But I think it nonetheless, for, sort of on a cultural level, is is very difficult. I mean, I read a book um, a few years ago now a book called Nothing to Envy, which was a book about North Korean defectors uh, right. crossing over into the South. And what this woman had done was. Um, Gone to set. Well, she was based in South Korea. She was a bureau chief for the 
something American newspaper, the Washington Post or something in, right. in, in South Korea. But she had decided to interview people who'd come from the North and basically find out about their lives and what it was like crossing over. And for a lot of them, it was a really gradual process of sort of disillusionment with that regime. You know, they'd grown up totally yeah. sold on the propaganda, singing that nothing to envy was a line from one of these kind of patriotic songs all the kids had to sing all the yeah. time and so on. And really the, the struggles that made them get to a point where they thought, actually, I can't live in this country anymore. I have to get away from this. This is wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not straightforward. It's not a really easy thing. It's actually a really difficult choice. And for some of them, you know, something that they struggled to really ever make a life in this kind of yeah. very different, you know, westernized kind of modern, yeah. do, do, do you know, yeah. a, 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 more like what we would consider a kind of normal yeah. uh, environment in a yeah. sense. I mean, one character in that book in particular was a, a, a mother who her, her daughter, I think, had defected before and she ended up following her. But she was totally a real sort of party loyalist and it yeah. was a really difficult thing for her and she never really adjusted to life, you know, in a more kind of western for want of a better word, yeah. country in yeah. a sense, because that was not that that was not what she was used to. It was it was it was very difficult, and you and you get that definitely in the defector with you know he he has that line: "These are not my stars." Yeah. You know this idea of it's never going to be home. Um, you, you know, however well treated he is, or, or however kind of righteous the the causes that he's um, defecting for, he's always going to be kind of um, a man alone in some way by by putting himself in that position. But it is kind of interesting. In Neptune, you do get quite a lot of these defectors back and forth with the Romulans. I mean, in face of the enemy, you've yeah. got this guy who's defected and then he's defecting back again. Yeah. I mean, why anyone... I, I kind of get why... Maybe this is just like human centrism, but I sort of get why the Romulans might defect to the Federation. I'm slightly unclear why a Federation citizen defects yeah. to the Romulans, but, you know, whatever. He talks about something a of order and focus, so maybe, like, it's very weird... But you also, you know, talking about the that come along I was years watching earlier. that episode, <laughs> and I was like, theory. my wife and I were like, that is literally the most unflattering costume ever put on a human being. Yeah, it's, it's like they put him in a sausage casing, and it, it's extremely unflattering. Yeah. And like, it's it's a it's very hard to focus on him I wearing think that I chose this costume because when he first arrives he's, he says get out of that uniform yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he's really angry about him being in a Romulan uniform he's probably sent a memo down yeah. to like you, you know yeah. the Enterprise's uh, tailoring shop or yeah. whatever to say like put, I want this guy to look like an idiot yeah basically it doesn't help that he's still got this kind of slightly crap Romulan haircut yeah. or wear like a wig like a horrible he, I know, I know, wig he, he yeah. just looks sort of slightly hopeless that yeah. yeah but I mean but anyway you do, you do get this sense of these people kind of going you know, kind of defecting back and forth, whether it's uh, Admiral Jarrick in The Defector yeah. or, um, but he, you know, that guy in this story and, and the politician, of course, who the, you know, the story is kind of more centred around yeah, who's yeah. going to defect the Federation and, yeah. and bring his secrets or bring his political out with him. Wherever. Yeah. Um, what's interesting, he does say something that I think is really interesting in the scene where he's brought into the ready room with Worf and Picard says, why didn't you tell us this information before? And he says something, on Romulus, you learn not to volunteer mm. any information mm-hmm. until you have to. Yeah. And it's just an interesting, another piece of like interesting insight into Romulan society. Yeah. Um, that sort of closed. Yeah. Like, well, again, under a totalitarian exactly, regime. Exactly. I mean, that's, exactly. That's what it, when I, um, 
I probably mentioned this before, and I apologise to the listeners for, for always bringing things back to this subject. But when I did my book about the Channel Islands, one of the guys you that I interviewed... about the Channel Islands? Yeah. <laughs> one of the guys I interviewed there, I, I said to them... I, I asked everyone what was the worst thing about living under the Germans for five years. And a lot of people, it was like, oh, we had no food, or, <laughs> you know, we thought we'd be arrested or whatever. And he said the thing that was the hardest for him was he just didn't feel he could be himself. He didn't... He had to second-guess everything he said to anyone. Yeah. Because he didn't know if they might be... Someone might be listening, or they might, you know, dob him into the authority or whatever it was and it was just that sense of self-censorship yeah. which is what comes with living under that kind of regime mm-hmm. um, and, and that that was the, the it, like, it crushed him do you know what I mean it crushed him as a person just yeah. to feel like he couldn't ever relax essentially yeah. because he was always worrying you know what if I say the wrong thing and there's going to be some kind of consequence and, and I suppose to go from a society like that to a society where you can kind of speak your mind broadly speaking I mean they, they talk about that um Certainly in the, the novel of Red October, I can't remember if it comes out in the film, but, um, I think it is this scene at the end between Jack Bryan and Ramius. And, and he's, he sort of basically said, he, he says something like, you know, you can come to America, see how we do things and then tell us we're getting it all wrong. That's what everyone else does. Yeah. And it's that idea that basically, you, you know, you have the freedom to say when you think we're crap or when you think yeah. our values are wrong or do, do you know what I mean? And that, yeah. that's almost the most important thing is being able to, criticize as yeah. well as just be the yes man and go along with everything yeah. which is so different of course to what you see you know in the kind of soviet military in that yeah. story with you know like with peter firth's character the you know the political guy with these other guys on the ship that no one quite trusts yeah uh you know that no one quite dares to question anything or to um say what they're really thinking at any time i mean that should turn into like boy like voyager bashing but i i think that that's what an element Chakotay brings it up in an episode really early on in the first season, and it's such a shame that they didn't follow through with it, right? That, like, this idea that Chakotay had not one, but two undercover spies mm. right under his nose, and he didn't know it, and he, like, he's like, am I stupid? How did I not know? Both, you know, Seska and obviously Tuvok. Mm. And it's such a shame that they didn't play that out a lot more in terms of his own, like, psyche and, like, what it meant. I mean, the, the, the integration of the, of, of, of the Maquis into the, into Starfleet at the end of the very first episode is, I think, one of the greatest kind of missed opportunities in all of Star Trek history. Mm. But that's for another podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is, it is such a shame that he didn't, he didn't have that paranoia that you think he should have had for a long, long time. Maybe just because, I mean, maybe it's just because Chakotay's a nice guy and he thinks everyone else is kind of as straight up as he is. Maybe it's because the Maquis, there was this real, like, the Maquis are often presented in Star Trek as being a bit naive, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? They're kind of idealistic. They're they're idealistic, they're naive. They kind of don't almost think anyone would be working against them in that way. Do you, yeah. do you know what I mean? And, yeah. they, and they maybe think if someone comes along and says, yeah, yeah, I believe in, you know, freedom for the demilitarized zone or whatever, yeah. they, it doesn't cross their mind that yeah. they might actually not think that at all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that seems like the right thing. I mean, almost maybe a bit like, you know, we've had all these things coming out here about these police going undercover in, you know, amongst environmentalists yeah, yeah. or, you, you know, kind of left-wing groups, basically, yeah. and these police having relationships with these women in yeah. these groups and so on. The idea of these kind of infiltrators who who seem to be, signed up to your your kind of noble ideals and in fact are you know secretly working against you but i suppose that's quite different from um well at least to me it seems that seems different if if you're the kind of 
anti-authority group and you're the kind of idealists and you're the ones kind of questioning everything and saying what you think is right compared to if you're representing the state and the military and so on. Mm. And I guess what's interesting with the Romulans is you have got, just as in the Soviet system, these kind of two levels. You've got the military and then you've got the intelligence community and they are kind of working against each other or there's there's a definite conflict there and and they both have a certain amount of power. Um, and we see it again, I guess, with Section 31. You know, you could say in Discovery, for example, there's that scene um, uh, where Pike has that line, the chair outranks the badge. Yeah. And it's exactly that kind of moment. It's almost exactly what you're seeing on the Romulan ship in face yeah. of the enemy yeah. of the captain saying, OK, fine, you'll tell Shiar, but this is my ship. And yeah. I, I give the orders here, yeah. essentially. And, you know, I, but sort of pushing that. But at the same time, you get the sense she can't push too far, too far yeah. because actually who knows whether Troy's yeah. character could get yeah. you know not not just get people bumped off but she makes some remark at some point about how their families are going to be yeah. uh, you know yeah. they'll go after their families which yeah. again is, is you know very much that kind of totalitarian sort of but I think I mean not to go not to go too deep dive on this or not to deep dive too much on this but like that tension of the military and the intelligence is mm. kind of a key component to what out to, to making and, and, and the chaos that that causes is what makes the paranoia and it's part of the, the mixture of why totalitarian regimes work mm. ironically um, interestingly but, we see it in the hunt for red October on the American side as well though because Jack Ryan works for the CIA yeah, yeah. and the naval people initially oh. are quite suspicious of yeah, him totally. because they think he's a spook or whatever and then I suppose they kind of realise that yeah he works for he's not really CIA yeah. do you know what I mean he, he was, was a marine he was, yeah, books yeah, yeah, yeah. yes and he was a marine originally yeah. and it's kind of like he's ended up as a CIA analyst yeah, somehow yeah, yeah. Um, but it's he, he's not he's not some kind of shady customer yeah uh, really he's he's again pretty straight down the line yeah, yeah no but i think i think that the um that that tension is so important and you do see it wonderfully in and in, in on in the romulan ship but i think there's an element of like this is my ship and and mm. at the end of the day i still give the orders but you keep them at arm's length you don't piss them off too much to the point that in, in red october they have to kill them yeah they, exactly. they, you know yeah. They, and they make it look like an accident yeah. right yeah. and the doctor he has that great line. Says, a, a terrible, "There's been a terrible accident." Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> like so nonchalant. Yeah. About the um, but yeah, but he—they uh, had to kill him because mm-hmm. if not, there was no way that they could have done it. And they—and then they find out, obviously, that there's someone else who's out there who's a spy. Mm-hmm. And yes. it's interesting in Deep Space Nine. You mentioned thirty-one. Obviously, later on, you do all of a sudden start thinking, "Oh wow, are there Section Thirty-One operatives on other Starfleet vessels?" And you—you you know what? What you leave behind. In the documentary, when they talk about a season eight of Deep Space Nine, Bashir mm. is the chief, uh, you know, the chief medical officer on the, on Dax's ship, mm-hmm. but he's also running thirty one, like, yeah, you know, yeah. running section part of. Well, so in Enterprise, of course, you've got Reed, Reed, who it turns out, you know, four years in, we discover has yeah. this kind of other yeah. sort of other loyalty and this other agenda. Yeah. Uh, again, so that kind of idea that you might be, yeah. you know, working. And actually, that's something that comes through again in the novel. I don't think is in the film is that Jack Ryan is to some extent doing that because he's being asked to kind of back. Uh, send back information to the yeah. White House yeah. without necessarily informing the people who are kind of yeah. looking after him on the mission, if yeah. you see what I mean. So he, he is almost a kind of spy. It's just he's a totally upstanding, honest, yeah. kind of yeah. decent spy. Whereas the character that uh, Deanna Troy is playing is... I mean, she really steps up. It's interesting. She, she starts off by... Uh, because she's obviously uncomfortable being put yeah. in this role. It's obviously like way out of her comfort zone. It is a stretch 
uh, I don't know if it's a stretch for Marina Sirtis, but it's certainly a stretch for Deanna Troy yeah. to play that. And she starts off by kind of saying, well, I, I, I'm quite new. I've only been doing it a few months or whatever. Yeah. So she sort of plays down her authority. But then by the end, she's really pushing it and she's making threats and yeah. she's saying she's going to go after people's families yeah. and their children yeah. and everything. And she's yeah. like totally embraced this kind of, uh, quite scary yeah. character, yeah. really. Um, so and it's kind of interesting, you know. She does she does change a lot during the course of that episode to the extent that in the towards the end when they beam her back to the Enterprise, mm. and it's literally just she she just smiles and you suddenly think, oh yeah, that's Diana Troy, that's yeah. the character your wife hates. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We've been seeing yeah. something very different. Yeah. And I think, story. and it's just a shame because I think that the you know I am uh, Troy's by by no means in my in my top ten percent of Star Trek characters across mm-hmm. any series, but it, that episode showed. That had that character been written slightly different, had that character been given something else to do, mm. that could have been a very interesting character. I can think of other moments when Troy was forced to be outside of her comfort zone, and those are the best times where that character shines. Mm. In, in what's uh, what's that episode? Um, that got that horrible seventh season episode where she makes Commander, where Data is like being Dino himself, Dino himself, yeah. exactly, and. Uh, I mean, the A story is ridiculously awful. Yet the B story, where she's taking the commander's test and the holodeck, she basically has to mm. order Jordy to do something that will most likely, if not definitely, get him killed for the sake of the ship. Mm. And that's part of the character test. Mm. Like, that's a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal Troy story, right? It's, tr- I think Troy works best when they really play against type and type of character. Um, I think I also think that the idea of the Troy character is ridiculous. Like, obviously, having a therapist on a ship like that makes sense. Having a therapist who's part of the senior crew that sits literally ne- uh, like in the Holy Trinity next to the captain and advises the captain with things like, who says things like, I, I think they mean it, or uh, I can't read anything. He's very close. Like, he, he has no value whatsoever on the she's, bridge. It's always a bit ambiguous, isn't it? Because she's really there. She's on the bridge, not because... You, you don't get the sense that every ship that has a counsellor has the counsellor on the bridge. She's there because she has basically a superpower, you know, because she's got this yes. kind of empathy. Um, but then it never and, works. No, <laughs> no, 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 and then there's a problem. Yes, of course, then there's a problem that it, like, kills any yeah, uh, yeah, tension around the guilty exactly. storytelling. Yeah. So, so you can't really use You have to find ways of neutralising yeah. it or, or, or just making it only come across yeah. when she's saying something obvious anyway. But it's interesting in this story. Apparently, they were originally going to use Gates McFadden in this story, and it was going to be yes, exactly. Russia who went yeah. undercover, yeah. Uh, which would have been interesting since she was the one who didn't make it onto the Red October yeah, yeah. and she stayed at home in England. Um, she didn't make it in Red October. She didn't make it in the Romulan ship. She didn't make it in the Romulan ship. ship. Yeah, yeah. Poor, poor old Gates. Poor, poor old but, Gates. But then apparently they decided that they thought it would make more sense for Troy to do it because of her empathic skills. Well, that, that, there is that one scene which is quite effective where she says, oh, that guy's lying and then the other guy kills him and she's really shocked and like, I didn't, you know, I didn't want you to kill him. You, you know, and she, it kind of implicates her, I suppose. Other than that, though, I feel like she doesn't really... I don't know if it is so much that she doesn't, that she needs her empathic skills. I think it's more that she's, because she's such a soft, kind, sweet character. Um, I was never that wild about Troy growing up. I've kind of, as I've got older, I've come to appreciate her more, funnily enough. I don't know why I, I like her more as a character than I, I didn't hate her, but like, I just found her a bit nothing. These days when I watch Next Gen, I kind of appreciate her presence more. Mm-hmm. I, I find it quite a nice um, you should have a chat with element. I know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I think it's more that it's just such a contrast to her regular character, what she has to do. And it would yeah. be for Dr. Crusher too. But somehow because Troy is always the one being kind and being nice and yeah. being kind of um, sensitive and understanding, right. it is a real 
shift somehow. But see, it worked really well when they tried to do it with cast in that World War episode mm-hmm. or whatever. Yes, I exactly. really that felt I, I, that didn't that didn't work for me. Right, okay, that didn't work. And partly it's probably you can say the you know Quite the material. That. Really, yeah, I, I, I like that version of yeah. cast. Yeah. No, I, it just it didn't work for me in the same way that you didn't buy it because I didn't buy yeah, it. Okay, well, I didn't I buy it. I think. It's a bit of a stretch. It, I, this one I bought completely. Yeah. And I think because you see the transition in this one where she's like, what, what am I, what am I supposed to do? And she's so afraid and, and, and like nervous. And at the end when she figures out that Nevek has no plan mm. and she goes, you have no plan, Nevek, you know, now you're doing things my way. Uh, yeah. and if not, I'll tell the guard to throw you at the airlock. And all of a sudden she like really embraces and this. And you almost start to think, is, is she just bluffing or, you know, yeah. she, like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's, it's, you're right. It's, it's quite convincing somehow. She, yeah. she really throws herself into that part. She the told, end both Troy throws herself into the mayor, into the mayor, mayor, yeah, major, major. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I think Marina really throws herself yes. into the role. So I just think it just works where I supposed to cast. It just didn't quite, right. I didn't quite buy yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Well, and then of course you end up with the same storyline almost with Kira, uh, you know, coming yeah. up in DS9, sort of playing yeah. this, this kind of thing with a, a different kind of inflection on it. But kind of the opposite, right? Because Kira is meant to be this like loving daughter. Yes. And like, yeah, and yeah. actually, you know, Troy is, I mean, Kira is far more like the, what the major, no pun intended, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like, yeah. um, than she is this kind of soft spoken. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, that's one of the, in my book that has, uh, that scene where the, there, where Cisco and Garrick are on the ship. Or on the Defiant, and they and they come across the 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 uh, I was going to say Romulan, but the Cardassian patrol ship, and then and then Garrick shuts everything down. It's one of the greatest scenes in all of these Space Nine. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, yeah. anyway, for another topic, definitely for another topic. Well, one of the things that interests me about these kind of Cold War stories, mm-hmm. I suppose, is you've got Next Gen, which obviously, I mean, the original series series was running kind of at the height of the Cold mm-hmm. War, and you did have, you know, I'd say you you did have. With both the Romulan, I mean, the Enterprise incident is really like a kind of spy thriller, mm. espionage thriller, essentially. But you also have the Klingons cast in these kind of um, Cold War yeah. roles. By the time you get to Next Gen, obviously, it's the very kind of tail end uh, of the Cold War. I mean, the defector is like 1990, so yeah. the Berlin Wall has fallen, but the Soviet Union is just about yeah. kind of still going. By the time you get to face the enemy... Uh, the Soviet Union has collapsed. It doesn't yeah. exist anymore. So it's kind of interesting. And, and all these stories, and, and also you get um, episodes like Drumhead. I mentioned mm. like uh, The Mind's Eye doing yeah. a kind of Man- Manchurian candidate again. But those episodes sort of going back to the kind of 1950s era, going back to the kind of McCarthy yeah. Red Scare, yeah. going back to, uh, you know, the Manchurian candidate starts in the Korean War, yeah. so sort of early 50s, yeah. and was published, I think, towards the end of that decade. Um, so it's this sort of interesting question of, is Star Trek doing... It's not necessarily quite doing ripped from the headlines as much as there have been these more recent defections yeah. that, that, that have been going on. And it, it's a difficult time because it's like, are you doing historical drama or are you doing kind of contemporary drama? And apparently when they sent Sean Connery the script for The Hunt for Red October, initially he turned it down because he said, this is ridiculous. And this was in like, what, 1989 or something, yeah. presumably around yeah. the time the Berlin Wall was falling. Uh, he, he said, this is, this is absurd. You know, this wouldn't happen now. And they said, oh, no, no, this is, this novel was written, you know, whatever it was, like five or six years ago or yeah. something. And, and we'll, we'll set, and the very first thing you see in the film is it says in 1984. So it's like, it's very specific about saying, okay, this well, is not now. This is, you know, a few years ago, essentially. But behind the scenes, fun fact is that they faxed him the script mm-hmm. and they forgot to fax the first page. Is that why? That's right, why. Okay. He, so yeah, like yeah. He, the first page is exactly what says in the, you know, this, right, you know, okay. this, 
this but happened. But I probably thought he didn't need it because it's just like and, you know, and, it's like and, text on the screen. And then they, and then they, they ended up faxing him that yeah, page because yeah. he didn't understand. It's like hey, this would never happen. And he's like, no, yeah. no, this is a few years ago. Yeah. This is like, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And obviously, Connery, of course, you, you know, as the, the archetypal uh, 60s, um, you know, Cold War spy, yeah. essentially. I mean, basically, yeah. you know, kind of interesting casting. Yeah. Well, great casting, also interesting casting from that point of view. Um, and, and also, of course, you know, at the same time as Next Gen is putting the Romulans in this role, we've also got in the movies, the Klingons are still playing yeah. that role because you've got, um, you know, around the same time as you mentioned, unification, you've got Undiscovered Country, yeah. which is all about, uh, you know, the end of the Soviet Union, but with the Klingons as the mm-hmm. Soviets in yeah. that instance. So it's, it's kind of interesting, even though it's running simultaneously with Next Gen, it's, it's still using the kind of original series mm-hmm. uh, model in a sense, one way or another. Yeah. Um, before we go, should we just have a little chat? I mean, we, we're recording here sort of end of July 2019, obviously a long way from the Cold War, but very close in or, time. Or, to, or at the beginning of a new <laughs> one. Well, let's hope yeah. not. <laughs> but who knows? The yeah. way, you know, politics is, is going right now. I wouldn't put anything past them. Um, but we have literally just a couple of days ago seen the first trailer for the new Picard series. Mm-hmm. And obviously we know the Romulans are going to play a big role right. one way or another in that uh, I mean, I thought one, that trailer was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I have watched it several dozen times now. Uh, I, I'm, I, one, I'm just in awe of the fact that in this day and age, when we know so many spoilers, when so many things, I was, I loved the fact that I was genuinely surprised with the reveal of seven, mm-hmm. the Borg, and with data. Mm-hmm. Or who we think is data. Apparently, Brent Spiner said today that it was definitely data. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I didn't expect any of those. I expected I, Romulans. I actually because well, they talked about being the Romulans. They talked about it being the Romulans, and also because we know that the combination of Nemesis and then the 2009 movie setting yeah. off this, you know, this huge thing. I mean, blowing up Romulus, yeah. and then never showing us what happened next. Yeah. It you know creates this kind of massive geopolitical shift in the, the Star Trek universe, essentially, that, I mean, obviously, if you read the novels, the novelists have had to kind yeah. of grapple with that. I think Star Trek Online has had to grapple. Yeah. You know, they're, they're in the kind of ancillary material. Yeah. They've had to grapple with what that means. But canonical Star Trek has never answered yeah. those questions. Yeah. And it sort of seemed... I mean, I sort of assumed, because with the previous trailer, I think there was this talk of Picard leading some humanitarian yeah. mission. I always assumed that was to Romulus. Now, I don't know if that's going to turn out to be the yeah. case or not, because I think now that the Borg are involved, there are people speculating yeah. that yeah. there might be other elements there. But there's definitely a sense, there seems to be quite a lot of Romulan characters in this story, as well as quite a lot of Romulan, Bo- uh, of, uh, as well as quite a lot of Borg characters. There seem to be kind of links between those two elements of the story. And it seems like Picard is a linchpin between them because obviously we know that Picard has links to the Borg because obviously he was Locutus he seems to know Seven personally we know he knows Hugh yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's got a kind of history with the Borg one way or another and with these other de-Borgified you know those are the two other kind of de-Borged yeah. characters in a sense but he's also got this kind of history with the Romulans we're given to understand not just what we saw in Next Gen but obviously in Nemesis he was kind of there at this previous quite pivotal moment Um you know, what is his role? He, is he a sort of friend to Romulus? Do the Romulans look up to him? It sort of feels that way. Mm. I mean, in Star Trek VI, we had this idea of Kirk as Nixon going to China yeah. as, the, as the the old enemy. Yeah. What does that make Picard? Because it seems like he's the... Yes, he was the enemy, if you think of like Next Gen and yeah. Tomalak and all that kind yeah. of stuff, but he's very much the enemy who wants to build bridges and has been... Yeah. You know, even for 20 years, we've seen Picard. I mean, in Nemesis, whatever you think of the merits or not of that film 
um, there is that moment quite early on in the film where he he has this line about standing in the Romulan Senate and wanting to kind of yeah. um, you know open relations in a yeah. sense to kind of tear down the Iron Curtain basically yeah. to kind of get yeah. rid of this um, uh, you, you know because there is that sense and even in the design of that Senate floor in that film they, they have a, a design of the neutral zone I yeah. think don't you and yeah. it does look like a curtain crossing yeah. across space and there is that sense of the yeah. Romulans they're always the other side of this yeah. Yeah. this boundary this division you know um, and Picard seems to be wanting to kind of reach across to uh, just sure. like Spock is trying to reunify with the yeah. with the Romulans and the Vulcans, this idea of trying to kind of bring them in from the cold, I suppose. See, I don't think that the so I'm obviously this is all pure speculation. Mm-hmm. God knows, in, in a year's time we shall revisit this, yeah. and we can discuss and see how wrong we were or how right we were. Um, I, I think that the story is going to play that he was after the destruction of Romulus. He led a Federation task force to try to kind of help remaining Romulans mm-hmm. or bring, you know, do something with Romulan space. Mm-hmm. In Romulan space with survivors, it is, they refer to it as humanitarian armada, mm-hmm. things like that. So I think something like that is definitely the case. Hence why you have several Romulan characters, at least two, a male and a, an older male and a, and the female who are speaking to him as, as like they look up to him. Like yeah, don't forget yeah. like who you are and blah. I think he then something happens with the Romulans. Maybe Starfleet Section Thirty One kills them. Something happens. He loses all faith in mm-hmm. in Starfleet. Becomes a recluse. Goes to Dagobah and makes wine. Mm-hmm. Um, this character comes back who has some kind of link to Romulans. I think we fi- we then find out that some kind of Romulan faction, Tal Shiar, maybe has uh, done something with Borg and Borg mm-hmm. technology, maybe mm-hmm. to start to kind of reclaim power. Do they Are they starting experimenting with Borg technology, Borg weapons? We see Romulans inside a Borg cube, right? So I'm, I'm thinking that 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 they, they're using Borg technology, either deborging Borg or coming up with the next generation of Borg, potentially as a new army because there are no more Romulans, so they have to figure out what to do. Um, and I think there's kind of the connection. I think the story is very much about the Romulans. I think the story is very much about the Romulans using the Borg. Mm-hmm. Do they come in contact with a cube that you, in a post-descent world, uh, you know, it's like there's something clearly there. Um, so I'm thinking that, the, that it's about Romulans using Borg technology for some nefar- nefarious means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the captain gets involved and is the Borg is this, is what's her, what, what, Anish, or not Anish, uh, the character's name. Anyway, the woman, the, the young woman that comes to Picard for help. Right. Is yeah. she, you know, the fourth princess, or is she, is she, you know, made from Lutetus's DNA, or like, you know, all of this stuff, all the, so yeah. I think there's definitely a connection there. Um, but anyway, I'm thinking that that's more or less what's going to happen. I think obviously Picard goes to Starfleet. Starfleet is now this kind of, in a Trump America world. They say, no, we're not going to help you. He goes rogue. He goes renegade gets a crew to help him. Then they send Riker after him. Wow. <laughs> and Troy. And Troy. And, and you know, Troy knows, maybe, Riker. Maybe Troy yeah, would yeah, be... Yeah, yeah. You know, maybe a little bit more useful. Mode. Yeah. Yeah. But then so I do think that Riker and him have some conflict. Because right. that's going to make great drama. Yeah. And in the end, Riker helps still Captain. Okay. Cool. Well, we'll we will come back in a year's time, and, yeah. <laughs> or, or less even, I think, and, uh, and, and see whether we're right. But it's interesting. I mean, it certainly seemed like they were leaning on the Romulans yeah. up till that l- latest trailer. And then the fact that the Borg were really in there in a big way is the big shocker. That's the big shocker. That's the big surprise. No one- and of course, it makes sense for Picard. Yeah. But at the same time, it's kind of, 
what does it mean for the bigger story? Uh-huh. Um, that's the real question. Because we kind of knew they were going to have to address the Romulan issue yeah. one way or another. Yeah. Uh, but addressing the Borg as well is, you know, how are they going to handle those two story elements? And as you say, what are the links between them? Because it does seem like yeah. Romulans and the Borg, there's something, there's something, something going happening. on there. Definitely. And I mean, the inclusion And you wouldn't have asked them. No, of course not. Right. Yeah. I think the inclusion of Seven is, was so... Data kind of makes sense, especially if he's playing, you know, if it's a holodeck sequence and he, mm-hmm. like, plays cards with Commander Data in the holodeck. I mean, that yeah, kind yeah. of makes sense. Um, but I thought Seven makes sense from the point of view, if you look at Demokleva, she's such an important character, such a popular character. If you look at, um, I tweeted the other day this old article from StarTrek.com where the Netflix... Um, Netflix revealed a few years ago the top 10 most watched episodes of Star mm-hmm. Trek on Netflix. Eight out of the 10 of them all deal with the Borg. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, across Voyager and Next Gen with two very random other ones. But, um, um, so, you know, the popularity, the analytics, everything made sense of why including the Borg, but they hadn't said anything about the Borg. And when you can include the Borg, but then all of a sudden including Seven, I just, it was, it was and amazing. Well. And you, I mean, you know, I mean, that's also a huge surprise. Yeah. Yeah. That so. is a big surprise. And that also, I mean, I suppose including Seven, you might think, cause they wanted her in Nemesis, didn't they? Yeah. Originally. And she was the one then who was like, this is totally random. I've yeah. never met any of these characters yeah. before. Why would yeah. I be in this film? Yeah. Forget it. But. The fact you've got Hugh in there as well, I think, kind of justifies it. Because, I mean, first of all, it seemed from the trailer we're going to have to accept that she and Picard have some kind of long-standing relationship. Yeah. She talks to him in quite a familiar... Yeah. Uh, Which not makes like sense. a first meeting. Yeah, it's like it, she's clearly met him before. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Hugh is in there as well does make you think, okay, these are the th- these are three people who have one quite fundamental thing in common, that they were all, like, proper Borg, and to some some degree or other, they're now... Less Borg. Less Borg. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you do see in that trailer what looks like deborgifying yeah, processes going yeah, on yeah. and people being kind of brought back yeah. from the Borg. So, you know, maybe that, who knows, maybe that's the humanitarian uh, mission was to, you know, maybe there are many more people now yeah. who were former Borg yeah. who could be redeemed and be kind of. Yeah, and it makes back. sense that, like, that, you know, if Seven really, which she does at the end of Voyager, kind of really becomes and really becomes like loves being human mm. and starts to accept her humanity. Maybe in a post after, you know, she doesn't, she's not going to join Starfleet. Yeah. What is she going to do? Maybe she becomes this kind of like, um, you know, deborgifying mission of going out and finding all people who are Borg and unborging them. Yeah. Uh, sounds like a painful, horrible process. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could see that that's kind of where they're going. And clearly as the two humans and, you know, you talk about the comics and you talk about novels, the card and the seven have a relationship. They meet. They, they, in every, in all other non-canon Trek, it makes sense that these two characters from right. two different series come yeah. together. Completely makes sense. Well, because Seven, in a way, plays the, the data role. Yeah. Arguably in Void. I mean, I know the Doctor kind of plays the data role, but, yeah. you know, in terms of having that relationship, you yeah. know, the, the kind of mentor-mentee relationship between yeah. Picard and Data is very yeah. much. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not quite the same with Seven, because Seven is more like the kind of unruly teenager. Yeah. It's giving Janeway a bit of a hard time, but at the yeah. same time, it's definitely that kind of parental. Yeah. Yeah. dynamic again that yeah. you see played out there so yeah you're right it just makes a lot of sense it's but we will have to wait and see exactly uh, how the cards fall out but it's been a pleasure um, talking about the Cold War the Romulans uh, the hunt for Red October um, 
Carlos, if our listeners want to uh, track you down on social media and let you know why they think that Gates McFadden is the best thing about that movie. Right. Uh, Please do. I'd love <laughs> to hear that argument, given that she's in the movie for like 28 seconds. Where can they, how can they do that? Where can they find you? Um, I'm mostly on, on Twitter uh, and it's at double Mac um, with M-A-C-C, uh, which is stands for double macchiato, which is my obsessive coffee. Jane Wayne, I have one thing in common, which is our love, our love and obsession with coffee. I'm less of an Americano like she does. I go for the espresso, so a little bit more chilly in that sense. But yeah, that's me. (laughs) Well, thank you again for joining me. It's been fun talking about The Hunt for Red October and Face of the Enemy and the Romulans this week, but that's not the only thing we've been doing on Trek FM. So here's a listen to what else you might have missed out on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. But Larry, how do you know that there's not a house somewhere out there on the forge where... Cybox in the living room, Michael's in the living room, and there are like six other people in the living room that Amanda and Sarek and Spock never talk about. They t- oh, sure, they took us in for a while and they threw us in the house on the forge. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Wait, so what switched between your two lists? Calypso comes in, Runaway comes in second oh, of right, importance. Right. Okay. But Calypso comes in second. An enhancement of the season. Okay, I see and really, even in importance, I could probably, in my head, flip Calypso and Runaway because I don't mm-hmm. need Runaway. Standard Orbit. Star Trek Five: The Final Frontier is the best named movie of the first six movies, I think, because from a marketing point of view, from a Star Trek point of view. It's just a great title. You know, I'm not talking about the execution of the film. I just mean it's a great title. The other movie titles were, eh, eh, you know, I mean they weren't that creative. Literary treks. So I, I think if you have an idea or a story for a Star Trek novel, it would you would be better served if that came on the heels of the ten pieces of fan fiction that you've written or whatever, or, or things that you've written on your own that not necessarily fan fiction, but. If you practiced as a writer and, and have honed your your craft, because they're going to want you to be a, a good writer. Yeah, they're going to, and and that comes back to you know, it's they're going to tie in editors, and this is not just Star Trek. This is anybody. They're going to go with people who have demonstrated an ability to hit their marks, hit their marks clean, easy to work with, or at least able to work with. Um, and, and can do that on a, and can do that on a, you know, it's like okay I did it once no okay well now do it again now do it again now do it three times in a row now do it five times in this one calendar year and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an Apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple podcasts on iPhone iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. 
Choose to send to a show and select Primitive Culture, and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash TrekFM, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you can find all our details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take a moment now to thank our associate producers on Primitive Culture, Amy Nelson, Clara Cook and Tony Black. Amy is a presenter of many other shows on the network, and you can find her on Twitter at at Miss Amy Nelson. Clara and Tony were two of the former co-hosts of this show, and they'll be popping back from time to time. You can find Clara on Twitter at at Clara Jean MC and Tony at at AJ Black Writer. You're blended all right.